Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 19? Now, as we uh, said last time, we met, um, if you're like me, I feel like you've been walking through a very dark tunnel for a very long time with this book. And finally, now we have emerged out of the valley of the shadow of death and destruction that is called the tribulation period. And... Um, the night is far spent. The new day of God's kingdom, well, for us at least, as we sit here tonight, is getting very close. But here in Revelation, as we have been looking at the narrative, the Antichrist's capital, Babylon, has been destroyed, and his kingdom is in ruins. Again, the dark night of man's rebellion has finally come to an end, and the glorious new day of Christ's reign has come, at least in the narrative although this is going to become a reality much sooner than I think any of us realize. But the redeemed have waited a long time for this event, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ, and he reigns forever and ever. We saw that mentioned in Revelation 11, verse 15. But this is our hope. This is what we're waiting for, right? And, uh, of course, that's in um, contrast to unbelievers who are looking to man to solve the problems mankind is facing, you know, looking to science and medicine, technology, and politicians, which is a big mistake. But politicians looking to many people, looking to politicians to solve um, our problems, to solve our problems. Um, and the crises that the world is facing, many people are looking to leaders of this world to bring utopia to the earth, and in particular, one leader. Now, he's going to be hailed as the Messiah. We know him as the Antichrist, the false Messiah. He is coming. And Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that initially he is going to seem to be the very answer everybody has been waiting for. Uh, Messiah has come, okay? The three major religions of the world are still looking for a Messiah, okay? You've got the Jews who are looking for their Messiah. They reject Christ unless they're completed Jews, saved Jews. Uh, the um, Muslims, many of them, the, uh, the Shias, are looking for the uh, Mahdi, uh, who they believe is coming. Of course, uh, Christians, we're looking for the return of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Um, but then, of course, New Agers are looking for Maitreya Buddha, the latest reincarnation of the Christ Spirit. So, we have reached a very interesting point in human history. Uh, more and more people are believing a Messiah is coming. Now, the Bible tells us that is absolutely true, but before the true Messiah comes, a false Messiah will come and initially will appear to be the very, well, he's going to bring peace to the earth. He's going he's to solve man's problems, uh, probably have the ability to even heal sicknesses. Uh, but he is going to bring the world into a time of peace and prosperity, the utopia that mankind has been looking for, praying for, for many centuries. And Paul said, though, when the people of this world think, ah, finally, our Messiah is here, utopia has become a reality, then Paul said sudden destruction will come upon them quickly. 
like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So, of course, after the false Messiah we call the Antichrist um, comes and is defeated by Jesus, of course, Jesus will then set up his real kingdom. But um, no one's going to be able to fix the mess that mankind, and, and you know, I've been reading and studying the Bible for over 40 years. I can't believe what I'm seeing going on around me. I, mean, I, I believe it, and I know it's exactly the way the Bible has said. I mean, it's like I'm, I'm looking at things, the events uh, unfolding around us, and I'm going, oh, that's how it's going to happen. I wasn't sure how it was going to happen, but wow, I'm beginning to see more and more clearly that's what's going to happen before Jesus returns. This is all a part of what the Bible prophesies. Uh, it gives us, uh, you know, the, um, the main stuff that's going to happen. It doesn't give us all the details. Well, we're getting the details, folks. And it's all fitting together incredibly well, pointing to the very soon return of Jesus Christ, who's the only one who's going to be able to fix the problems that the world is. Somebody said, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Well, that's going to be the Antichrist. Okay, he will have absolute power, and he will so corrupt, um, well, the world will be very corrupt as it is now. It's going to be even worse, right? But uh, Jesus is going to fix that when he comes back and establishes a kingdom of true righteousness. So let's look at ver uh, chapter 19, verse 1. First three words are what? After these things. Now, as we have pointed out already, the Greek phrase is metatauta. Metatauta, which occurs four times in this book at the beginning of chapters 4, 7, 18, and now chapter 19. Here at the beginning of chapter 19, it is used to officially close out the events of chapter 18 and all that came before it, really, and introduce a brand new section in chapter 19. You have to understand that in the original manuscripts, there were no chapters and verses. So it's just one long story. And these metatauta breaks were like a, a, the close of one thought and the beginning of something brand new. And so if you're reading along without chapters and verses, you, and you know the Greek, you, can, you read and read and read, and all of a sudden, metatauta. Oh, something new is happening now. Uh, that is, that's over now. Well, I just read. Now this is a brand new thing is coming. It's something brand new. Let me share how it fits together, though. I'll read to you the last couple of verses of chapter 18 and then read verse 1 of chapter 19. So, Revelation 18, verse 19, They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her, meta tauta. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Guys, this loud voice from a great multitude, that phrase, a great multitude, is the same phrase used in chapter 7, verse 9, where the great multitude, listen, refers to the martyred dead of the great tribulation. In other words, 
these are tribulation saints. And I believe in chapter 7, verse 9, that great multitude is the same as this great multitude. Okay? For them, for these tribulation saints that have been martyred for their faith, and remember now, we saw them, um, well, in part, we saw these martyred saints starting in verse six, uh, chapter 6 and then into chapter 7. But at one point, you know, uh, those that were beheaded, the souls of those that were beheaded for their faith in Christ are under the altar in heaven, and they cry out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, faithful and true, until you avenge our blood upon those upon the earth who took our lives, who martyred us? And what does God say? Be patient. Be patient. Their time is coming. You know, our God's never in a hurry. We want Him to act quickly, because otherwise you're going to get away with it, Lord. I'm not sure what they're going to get away with. But if there are, you know, I mean, evil people, um, the longer they're allowed to stay on the earth and don't repent, of course, we want to see them repent. And so God in his grace often gives them a lot of time. Sometimes we look at that and go, why are you letting them still live, Lord? Look what they're doing. These child sex traffickers and this and that. Horrible people. But God loves horrible people. And I want to see them saved. But the longer they are allowed to live and don't repent, they are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not getting away with anything. Their day is coming. Their day is coming. Be patient and pray that they would be saved. Okay? But for these folks who have been martyred for their faith during the tribulation period, uh, the judgment of Babylon... And all that is connected to it is a great triumph. Um, as those who killed them for their commitment to Jesus have now been judged by God. The only thing left for them is, um, I'm talking about the people of the world who have been judged by God. Some of them are still alive, obviously. Their kingdom is gone. The Babylon has been wiped out, right? Um, and so the only thing left for them is one last futile attempt to keep Jesus from coming to establish his kingdom upon the earth. We'll study that next time, God willing, in verses 19 to 21, where the people of this world actually gather together as an army to do battle against Jesus Christ to keep him from returning to the earth and establishing his kingdom. Good luck with that. But uh, the word alleluia is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word hallelujah, which is a, 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 which is a word that is, combines uh, hillel, Hebrew for praise, and Yahweh, hillel to Yahweh, or hallelujah, right? Yahweh, of course, or uh, praise to Yah. Yah is a contraction of Yahweh. So really it's praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? The word hallelujah occurs frequently in the book of Psalms, especially but occurs only four times in the New Testament. All of them, interestingly enough, occur in the first six verses of Revelation 19, where they are reserved for the final victory of Jesus over his enemies. So this is real hallelujah territory. We sometimes use that word and other superlatives so much that it loses their you know, their impact, you know. Uh, everything is praise the Lord. Oh, pre you got a new car, praise the Lord. You know, yeah, you're going on vacation, praise the Lord. Everything is praise the Lord, right? 
And we wear that out, okay, just like we've worn the word genius out. When you go to the mall and you go to a computer store and it's marked genius shop or whatever they call it, they've worn the word out, okay? But this is a word that we should never wear out here on earth and we can't wear out in heaven. You will be saying praise the Lord, hallelujah, constantly in heaven. But it reminds us of Psalm 104 verse 35, which the psalmist says, May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah in the Hebrew. Well, verse 1 again, Revelation 19. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Now guys, this is a song that is emphasizing God's attributes. Which is the proper way to honor and worship the Lord. You know, we talk about praise music today. Okay, praise music. And you listen to Christian stations, radio stations, of course, um, and they have their top 40 Christian hits they play over and over again. Christian praise music. It's really kind of Christian self-music because it's really designed more to make me feel upbeat and get me fired up and, you know, and just feeling good. And, you know, it really is secular music oftentimes with God in it. I, I don't want to be too down on, I mean, I'm not putting down all Christian music. But there was a time in our nation's history where churches sang from hymnals that really did make God the focus. It really wasn't about man, you know, and how I'm feeling and praise God and God is so good. It's, that, that's kind of me as the focus. In fact, I was reading how that Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, um, very, very famous um, pastor in England, um, but lived at a time in the 1800s where a lot of clergy uh, were very poor. They couldn't even afford books, all right? They couldn't even afford books to study. And, and so, so Spurgeon actually uh, got his hands on a bunch of hymnals. Because in those, and gave them out to the clergy in, in the area, because in those days there was so much theology packed into Christian hymns, they could teach theology from the hymns that were being sung in churches. That won't happen today. Although I'm sure some churches are trying it. But it's not the same thing, because God is not really the focus, like he once was. But um, you realize the word worship, uh, is a shortened version of the word worth-ship. That's a little hard to say, worth-ship. So they shortened it to worship. But only God is worthy of praise. That's the idea behind worth-ship or worship. Look, as we look at this verse, we don't rejoice because sinful Babylon has been destroyed. We rejoice because Babylon's destruction will bring glory and honor to God's great name. We don't rejoice because this wicked apostate evil city called Babylon has been destroyed. We rejoice because God's name has been vindicated. You guys remember that during the reign of the Antichrist, 
his followers called the true God evil and unrighteous and blasphemed him constantly. While on the other hand, they worshiped Satan. They, they, they worshiped the dragon, the devil, uh, considering and, and worshiping him as the true God and his son, the Antichrist, as the true Messiah. But now God has vindicated his great name. How? By destroying Satan's kingdom and antichrist reign okay um god has proven himself to be true and righteous he's done it by defeating his enemies and so we rejoice that god is true and righteous and that he is glorified by his holy judgments yes god's judgments are holy and god is not a divine hothead we have talked about this the Greek word used of God, uh, his anger, is a Greek word that means like, like a volcano, which is slowly building up pressure. God is not a hothead. He doesn't just react every time something doesn't go the way he wants it to. He gives people much grace. Uh, he's very long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should perish from hell, but all should come to repentance, right? That's our God. But his, his nature is such where he has to punish sin. And eventually the day is going to come when he is going to have to unleash his anger in the form of judgment. Now, he doesn't want to do that. Our God, his default position, if I can put it that way, is to show mercy. And the prophet even said, it was Hosea, Lord, in judgment, remember mercy. And he always does, by the way. Because often God's judgments are designed to get people's attention so that they will repent. And that he can turn from his fierce anger and begin to bless them as his children. But not everybody turns. Not everybody repents. And some people are stubborn enough where they eventually are going to taste God's wrath. They're going to have to experience God's judgment. But his judgments are always holy. They're always righteous. Verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Notice we are told that she, and this is speaking of Babylon, or in other words, the false world religion that God's already judged. Um, we are told that she was judged by God for two main sins. This is the false religious system that came before the, um, well, no doubt including in many ways, um, it went from, one false religious system uh, headquartered in Rome to the Antichrist, false religious system where he declared himself to be God, right? But uh, this false religious system was judged for two main reasons. First of all, she filled the earth with false doctrine, turning many away from the true God to follow idols. And number two, she killed many of God's true servants, filling the earth with their blood. And so now God is praised for having judged the great harlot and having avenged the blood of his servants shed by her hand. Now, we live at a time when many people don't even believe in God anymore. Atheism, neo-atheism is on the rise, all right? A lot of young people don't even bother going to church anymore. We are at the lowest level of young people going to church that we've ever seen in our nation's history. That's a problem. I hope God changes that with a great revival, okay, like he did in the 60s. Uh, in the 70s where the Jesus movement started and these kids that were all strung out on drugs and uh, just you know turning on tuning out you know um, God began to get a hold of them 
the, the only hope for this generation is another move of God's spirit, all right? But um, there, the, we live at a time when a lot of folks don't even believe in God. But those who do believe in God um, will only believe in a God who is nice. You know, a God who is nice. And they only believe in a God who is nice. I mean, you Christians talking about judgment, my God would never judge anybody. My God would never send anyone to hell. Of course he wouldn't, because he doesn't exist. You've made him up. He's a figment of your imagination. He's not the God of the Bible. But a lot of folks have no trouble believing in a God who is kind and loving and, and, and so on and so forth. But a God who judges sin, they have a real problem with. And so when they read a book like Revelation, if they do, they are all down on the Bible, all down on you folks, because you believe this stuff, right? And they just feel like, you know, uh, I can't believe in a God who would... Look what he's doing to people. He's wiping them out. How terrible is that? What kind of God do you believe in? My God would never do this. <laughs> I love J. Vernon McGee. Tough old southern Baptist preacher. He always cut it straight. He said, and I quote, If you don't think what God is doing is right, it is because you, not God, are wrong. God will be righteous in judging the great harlot. God is always righteous in judging at any time and anyone. Look, the secret, if I could put it that way, is not to try to make God in your image and your likeness. The trick is to read the Bible, find out who God really is, and conform your life to his image and his likeness. God created us. I think it was Francis Schaeffer years ago, a great apologist, who said, you know, in the beginning, uh, God made man in his image, and now man is returning the favor. People are trying to make God in their image. And they're tolerant of sin. He's tolerant of sin. He would never send anyone to hell. They would never send anyone to hell. Their God would never send anyone to hell. And so on. All right? But God is righteous. He always judges righteously, but would rather show mercy and extend grace and save rather than judge. Verse 3. Again, they said, they're pretty excited, this group. Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, the second alleluia is connected to the statement that the smoke of Babylon will continue to rise forever and ever. Now, guys, this cannot refer to a literal city called Babylon because a literal city can't burn forever. But rather, this is referring instead to the people of the world, the earth dwellers, which we have talked about many times, who identified themselves with the spirit of Babylon, all it stood for. Yeah, it was a literal city, but there were... The philosophy, the, the spirit of Babylon uh, is what people connected with, right? And um, I believe that what's in view here is all the folks who identified with the spirit of Babylon, those who worshipped her and uh, participated in her wicked deeds and refused to repent of their sins. They are the ones being referred to that will endure eternal judgment in hell, even as chapter 14 tells us turn to chapter 14 remember now babylon excuse me 
Revelation 17 and 18 are the last parenthesis in the book. They're a flashback. Things have already taken place by the time we get to chapter 17 and 18. Chapter 14, we saw Babylon fall, okay? And all of her followers, uh, those that perished, sent to hell. And let's just read verses 8 through 10. Revelation 14, verse 8, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And I'm sorry I misspoke. Uh, those that have died uh, up until this point are not in hell, they're in Hades. We'll see when they actually are cast into hell um, in chapter 20. But anyways, so back to Revelation 19, verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down in worship God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia. This is a thunderous Alleluia. I'm not going to try to imitate it, but this is a thunderous, heaven-wide Alleluia. Can you imagine? All of heaven, I personally think there might be trillions of angels at least many billions just angels alone and they have some pretty strong vocal cords okay just if all the angels of heaven only shouted hallelujah it would be thunderous thunderous right uh, but this is what's happening it sounded like a mighty thunder saying hallelujah for the lord god omnipotent reigns now the 24 elders which we were first introduced to in chapter 4 along with the four living creatures that are around the throne of God saying, Holy, 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 night and day, uh, as the Lord God Almighty. They never stop saying that. Now, the 24 elders and the four living creatures now fall down and worship God and add their amen, alleluia, to the chorus of praise and worship being offered to God Almighty in heaven. Take note. The 24 elders that we talked about in chapter 4 represent the church. And the four living creatures, I believe, represent really all the hosts of heaven. All the angels of heaven, both, uh, both small and great. What do I mean? Well, there are um, rankings of angels. There are some angels that, like an army, you have your privates, you have, uh, you know, sergeants and corporal. I, mean, I don't know how the ranking goes, but generals eventually... You have Michael as a, as a chief. Ark means ruling angel. So Michael the archangel, he's one of the top guys. Of course, Lucifer was the top angel of all of heaven until he fell. All right. Um, so you have all these rankings of angels from uh, the least important to the greatest. And I believe that they're all represented by the four living creatures now. Um, and, 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 and as seen as all of heaven, all angels are seen as worshiping God, but listen, but are still separate from the great multitude spoken of in verse 1. Now, 
stay with me. So you have the 24 elders represent the church. You have the four living creatures represent all the angels of heaven. They're all praising God. But there's still a group in verse 1 that we can't identify. All right? A great multitude. In verse 1, that great multitude, we, uh, I don't know if we said this, but let me just say it now. In verse 1, that great multitude are the martyred dead of the tribulation period. They're tribulation saints. Those who were killed by the Antichrist and his followers. Look it. When commercial Babylon rose to power and caused the world to become drunk with her riches and power and sexual pleasure, pleasures and demonic deceptions. What do I mean? There's going to be a lot of deception during the tribulation period perpetrated by the Antichrist and the false prophet and the devil, of course. Um, but um, the greatest deception is going to be that the Antichrist is God or is a God and that Satan is the God. Now, that's the, you talk about an inversion of truth. I mean, you can't get much more upside down 180 than that. I mean, we are coming to a point in human history where the true and living God and his son Jesus Christ are going to be taken from the exalted position they are right now among evangelicals, of course, and they're going to be flipped where now the God of heaven, the true God and his son Jesus Christ, are looked upon like the devil and a demon. And Satan, during the tribulation period, is going to be looked upon like the, is going to be considered the true God, and his son, quote-unquote, the Antichrist, will be looked upon as the true Messiah. If you got a bunch of zealots who have come to believe that the Antichrist is the true Messiah, and he's pointing people to the devil, the great dragon, as the true God, well, what is that going to do to people who believe that in their hearts? How are they going to respond to people who follow the true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ? They're going to be looked upon as the worst cult following you'd ever want to see. And of course, in their minds, like Paul the Apostle, before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus, decided it was his responsibility to help stamp out this cult called Christianity until he realized that it wasn't a cult at all uh, and that he was on the wrong side. Jesus Christ was the Messiah and Christianity was the truth. It was the fulfillment of Judaism. He didn't realize that until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, okay, and everything changed, all right? Uh, I don't care where you meet Jesus. When you truly meet him, everything changes, okay? You might meet him in the parking lot of Walmart. I don't care, you know? Uh, somewhere, some way, you can meet him in your living room watching Christian TV, like Raul Reese did, you know? I mean, this violent uh, guy, gangbanger, joined the, joined the, the, the Marines because he wanted to kill people legally. That's the truth. He was so full of rage and anger. Christian Gell, who was backslidden, married him. He put her life through living hell, uh, had a few children by her. Finally, after years of praying for him, and she couldn't take it anymore. He was just that abusive. And so she packed their bags, left them by the front door, went down the street to the church. They all were praying uh, for Raul, and they, she went in there and uh, and told them, them what she was going to do. She couldn't take it anymore. They all started praying. In the meantime, Raul comes home. 
You've heard the story, from fury to freedom. Ra comes home, sees the bags packed, knows what is going to happen, uh, goes into the closet, gets his shotgun. He's, he's determined that, look, nobody's going to ever have my wife and kids, no other man. I'm going to kill her. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to kill myself. That's what he was going to do. And I totally convinced he was going to do it. While he's waiting for her to come home, he turns the TV on. And the channel is right there, Chuck Smith preaching. You, tell me there's no God. For those who believe there is no God, they got a lot of explaining to do. Then you must believe that everything came from nothing all by itself. Instead of believing in the beginning, God created, right? What many coincidences can you live with before you realize these, these aren't coincidences at all? He turns on the TV with the shotgun in his lap, waiting for this wife and kids to come up so he can kill them all, kill himself. Here's Chuck Smith on the TV preaching the gospel. I forgot exactly the words, but Chuck said, look, if you're full of anger and hatred, and you don't know what to do with it. It's eating you up alive. Jesus Christ can forgive you and release all that garbage. He was broken. The Spirit of God was all over that scene. He fell to his knees, repented of his sins, received Christ, stood up from that place, a changed man. Went on to become a pastor, an evangelist of Hundreds of thousands of people over the years. Our, our God can do anything. But you have to come to a point where you realize, I need, I need to surrender. I need to surrender. Otherwise, my life is going to take some very ugly turns. And I'm not going to just hurt me. I'm going to hurt a lot of folks I love, supposedly. Okay? All right. I'm not sure. I, that wasn't in my notes. That doesn't count. That doesn't count against my time. I, no. Um, but commercial Babylon is going to have its field day for a while. And of course, the devil will be just having so much latitude during this time and uh, using um, wealth and sexual pleasure and demonic deception to bring many into his false kingdom. Um, and when that happens, they're going to hate the people of God so much that it's going to unleash a wave of persecution against God's people like has never been seen in the history of the world. Jesus talked about this. I'm not going to take you there. You've, we've looked at it several times. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 2. The tribulation that is coming against God's people, Jesus said, is going to be more horrific than has ever been in the history of the world or will ever again be. And these folks that are, that are shouting, hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigns, they're doing that because the Antichrist kingdom has been destroyed. He's been wiped out. And finally, finally, the Lord is reigning. Well, wait a minute now. Think about this. Uh, they say, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Look, you say, well, hasn't God been reigning already? Well, yes, of course. God's been reigning um, from eternity past. I mean, God's been, you know, but especially he's been reigning since the beginning of creation. Our God has always been on the throne, but this is different in that now Jesus is going to come who has purchased the world back and he is going to come and he is going to now 
conquer the thrones, the kingdoms of this earth, and make them his kingdom. His kingdom. Those that make up the kingdom of Satan and the beast, the Antichrist, Jesus will be king of kings and lord of lords, reigning over the whole earth from Jerusalem. Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. What would this world be like when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom? Look, I understand man's kingdoms. And I'm really sick and tired of man's kingdoms, including the kingdom of America. One author said, In his sovereignty, he, God, has permitted evil men and evil angels to do their worst. But now the time has come for God's will to be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. End quote. And folks, that's exactly what Jesus taught us to pray in the model prayer he gave to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. Why don't you turn there? You know it. Let's turn to it. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus couldn't pray this prayer. Forgive me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Sorry. That's just not, you know. It's really the disciples' prayer, right? Um, they asked the Lord, Lord, you know, teach us how to pray. Okay, Matthew 6, verse 9. Well, Jesus said, well, in this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guys, this was ultimately a millennial kingdom prayer. Now, hold on to that, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about that before we run out of time. But let's go back to Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The phrase, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, should actually be translated, for the marriage, supper, or feast of the Lamb has come. This is reinforced, this interpretation, in verse 9, which we'll get to in a second. But you see, by this time, we are already married to Jesus, which is made clear by the statement in verse 7, and his wife has made herself ready. Ready for what? We talked about this last week a little bit. His wife has made herself ready. Ready for what? Well, first of all, ready to be presented to the world officially as Jesus' wife, the church. And ready for the marriage feast or marriage supper, which always follows the consummation of the marriage. Now, you have to check out last week's teaching. We talked about Jewish marriage customs and how it all relates. We used uh, verses 7 and 8 of Revelation uh, 19 to springboard into that. So I'm not going to revisit it all again tonight. But you can read. And it's very um, enlightening to see what the Jewish marriage customs were and how so many verses in the New Testament are actually picking up on that. And when you actually know the customs behind, like, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you to myself, that where I am there you might be also. We read that, and you think, oh, okay, wonderful. You don't realize that's part of the whole marriage process. Where after they repeat their vows to each other, then he has to go to his father's house and prepare a place for him, because that's where his inheritance is. 
And he just adds on to the father's house, an apartment. In my father's house, there are many what? Dwelling, not mansions, dwelling places. Apartments for living, I guess. I don't know. Um, so if you weren't here, you might want to listen to that teaching. But verse 9, Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are called, listen, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Well, of course. Why did he have to say this? Uh, he's just, that's why John's way of saying, look, these are the words of God. So you, you can take it to the bank, okay? He's not saying, you know, these are the words of God, so I guess we have to trust him. No, of course, everything God says is true. We never have to worry that God's going to say anything untrue. It just It's not in his nature to do that at all, nor would he. Um, but here, guys, we have the Lord Jesus mentioned, the lamb, right, the bridegroom. We see the bride mentioned, his wife has made herself ready, which is a reference to the church. But then in verse 9 we read, Blessed are who? Those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's interesting to me. The question is, who are these referring to? Again, we have the bridegroom, Jesus. We have the bride, the church. But who are these guests? Well, some people say, well, they're, they're the church. Well, that's really kind of, it's kind of dumb. Okay, sorry. Uh, you know, one author put it this way, said, and I quote, The recipients of this blessing are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, that they are invited guests marks them as a distinct group from the church, since a bride would hardly be invited to her own wedding, end quote. Right? So who are they? Well, first of all, these guests represent Old Testament believers. Now in both Matthew 8, verse 11, and Luke 13, verse 28, Jesus mentions that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be citizens of the coming kingdom. In fact, in Luke 13, verse 28, uh, it also mentions that the Old Testament prophets are going to be a part of the kingdom. In fact, all the heroes of the faith mentioned in Hebrews 11, and these are all Old Testament saints. We call Hebrews 11 the great hall of faith, showcasing some of the great examples of faith in, in our Old Testament, right? So all the heroes of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11 are going to be among the invited guests. That's true. Here's one that might throw you. John the Baptist is going to be there, not as a New Testament personage, but as an Old Testament prophet. You say, what are you talking about? John appears in the New Testament, but Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 16, that John was the final prophet of the Old Testament period, and he was fading out, and Christ was fading in. In other words, the Old Covenant was fading out, John closed out the Old Testament period, and Jesus began the New Testament, or the New Covenant period. John the Baptist was typically, uh, was, uh, was, uh, was uh, typically, was the uh, last prophet, wrong word, last prophet of the Old Testament period. Just so you have that in your mind, Jesus said, though, in Matthew 11, verse 11, he was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. That's interesting. Greater than Elijah, 
Elisha who raised the dead and worked miracles? In fact, it says of John the Baptist, Jesus himself said of John, this man, or I'm sorry, John the apostle who wrote the gospel said of John the Baptist, this man did no miracles, but everything he spoke about Jesus was true. And Jesus said that caused John to be considered the greatest prophet in the Bible. You don't have to have supernatural power to be great in the kingdom of God. You just need to speak the truth about Jesus. So a lot of folks that have, you know, I don't know, some of it might be real. It's not of God, I don't believe, but some of these uh, preachers might have some supernatural power. I mean, God even used the donkey in the Old Testament to speak truth. He's still using the ministry of donkeys today, I guess. So, But um, you can hypothetically, let's just say a person's saved, the preacher. And they, they're genuinely saved, but when they teach about Jesus, they teach that Jesus, you know, is a BLM supporter. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's pro-Antifa because they're fighting for justice. He supports the gay community. He loves the gay community. He doesn't support the gay community. There are some very liberal, liberal pastors. I'm convinced most of them are not saved, but just there might be one or two in there that are truly saved. But if they teach wrong things about Jesus, his character, and so on, they're not going to be great in the kingdom. John was the greatest Old Testament prophet. He didn't do, do any miracles, but all that he said about Jesus was true. And God, uh, Jesus honored him for that. In fact, John, you say, well, how do we know for sure John's coming to the wedding feast? Look, in John 3, verse 29, John called himself the, fried, the friend of the bridegroom. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that is equivalent to our best man position, right? But the friend of the bridegroom was a very important part of the Jewish wedding much more than our best man. Um, but of course, the friend of the bridegroom was, a, was obviously a guest at the wedding supper. Okay, So John's going to be there. But guys, I don't believe John's going to be one of the invited guests. Um, but this feast won't be limited to exclusively um, Old Testament believers. I believe that all the new, excuse me, all the tribulation saints resurrected and glorified. When are they going to be resurrected and glorified? When Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, the church is going to be resurrected at the rapture. That's going to happen at least seven years before the second coming. Okay? So when are the Old Testament saints going to get resurrected? When are the tribulation saints going to get resurrected? I believe that Jesus is coming uh, because they are going to be members of the kingdom. I'm talking about believing Old Testament saints and tribulation. Well, they're, they're saints, obviously. They are believers. Um, they're going to be resurrected at Jesus' coming because they're going to be then allowed to come into the millennial kingdom. And so I believe the tribulation saints, resurrected, glorified, at Jesus' return, will also be a part of the kingdom and therefore guests at the marriage feast.
The marriage of the Lamb guys will take place in heaven, but the marriage supper will take place on the earth. And again, you have to listen to last week's study. Uh, I like what J. Vernon McGee said, and maybe you never thought about this. He said, and I quote, The marriage supper is evidently, listen, the millennium. You talk about a long supper. Millennium is a thousand years, right? The marriage supper is evidently the whole millennial period, the kingdom. You talk about a long supper, this is going to be a long one. At the end of the millennium, the church is still seen as the bride. Um, imagine a honeymoon which lasts 1,000 years. Yet that is only the beginning. What joy, what ecstasy. The angel puts God's seal on the scene. These are the true words of God. This is a promise from God. Now, I'm looking at the clock, and I think we need to stop there. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 10 next time. But um, a lot more coming that I believe are important things for us to glean. So come on back. God willing, we will continue on with verse 10 next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for, uh, well, for saving us, for opening our eyes to your truth, inviting us into your family, ultimately to be a part of the wedding of Jesus to his bride, the church, uh, which is what we will be. We are the church. And so, Lord, we just pray that you will give us grace to keep looking for this glorious event, uh, keeping our eyes on the coming of our Savior for his church. But, Lord, we uh, thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.